Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Kathy Fetke. Kathy, what's going on? Oh, so happy to be here again and see you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, today we have a guest who you recommended and is your friend. How do you know Chris? Uh, he's one of the um, property managers through Real Wealth that we recommend to our members there. And he's helped our our members buy properties for years. Um, we've seen the struggles. Uh, we've seen prices go up and, and people get angry about that. So we're constantly trying to educate and let people know what's really going on in the new new build to rent world uh, because it has had a lot of challenges. Yeah. Chris, who is, like you said, a property manager, a builder, mostly focuses, entirely focuses on build to rent, super knowledgeable, articulate guy. I, I don't invest in build to rent currently or new homes, but uh, I, I learned a ton today. What do you think our audience should be listening for uh, in our conversation with Chris? Well, again, if you are somebody who's in a contract to buy a new home already, uh, you really need to read your contract and see what your rights are because uh, people didn't really think they had to do that before. And one of the the big benefits of buying a new home as a rental is that you're locked into a price and you know it's probably going to close a year later or six months later and the price might be higher when you close. We just did that. We bought a, a, a townhome and it's gone up $400,000 since we went into contract. Uh, fortunately, my contract was bulletproof and they couldn't raise the prices on me. But uh, many contracts today are different because builders don't know what the end price is going to be. And then you might not be able to close. So that would be the, the most important thing to pay attention to is if you're going to buy a new home or if you're in the process of buying one, make sure you understand your rights or the rights that you may not have in your contract. Yeah, that's that's excellent advice. I, I really loved learning from Chris just why buy for rent is taking off and why it's such an appealing option for some of the larger investors. And from our conversation, it seems like build uh, build to rent is uh, is potentially a uh, option for smaller investors than I sort of previously assumed. Um, and Chris has some advice if you want to get into this particular niche on how you can do that. So with no further ado, well, actually a little bit of further ado, we do have to take a break. But right after that, we are going to welcome Chris Funk, the president and CEO of Southern Impression Homes. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A. Biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Chris Funk, president and CEO of Southern Impression Homes. Welcome to On The Market. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we'd love to hear all about your business and what you're thinking and doing in today's market, but we'd love to just start by understanding your history and involvement in the real estate investing industry. Well, our, our history began uh, back in late 2009 uh, when, you know, when it was, a, it was a different place and a different time in the real estate world, you know, right after the, the last crash. And we were buying, it, uh, buying uh, foreclosed homes you know, at, the, uh, at the courthouse steps. Um, like many, many real estate investors today, you know, that's where they, they started their careers. And so we, we, we were uh, buying, renovating and leasing homes. So we've always had a focus on uh, rental real estate. And through that process, uh, you know, we, we started a property management company. Uh, we started a building company and then ultimately a, a title insurance company uh, here all in, uh, in, in the state of Florida. And you know, at, at the at some point, we went from being renovator, renovators and uh, fix and flip sort of folks to build for rent. You know, as the as the market started to increase in in price over the years, um, we started to see that we could take advantage of the fact that we could get new product at the same price as old product, uh, and have a lot less maintenance uh, related to that uh, related to that product because it's new. Um, so you know, from about 2015 and 16, we made that conversion until today. You know, we're 100 100% built to rent, and uh, we, we actually don't don't do any uh, renovations and uh, rentals anymore. So no more REO to rent for us. That's that's incredible. You've done a little bit. Sounds like you've done a little bit of everything. Could you just uh, tell us a little bit about the scale? Like, how much build to rent are you doing right now? Sure. So th- this year we're going to finish right around 800 units of build to rent. Uh, we, you know, that's, that's down from where we wanted to be. You know, we were, you know, we, our, our plan was 1100 units this year, but, uh, as, as we've all seen with the, uh, shortage of materials and the supply chain issues, we, you know, we weren't able to hit our, hit our goals, uh, but still, uh, pretty respectable number. Now we've, we've also, in addition to that, uh, put about 600 lots on the ground that we've sold to other builders, you know, national home builders, uh, you know, properties that we, that we don't construct. Um, those are those are kind of our, our two main uh, 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 business models right now. In addition to, of course, the the management of the finished properties. Chris, are you building um, one off lots homes on you know one off lots? Or are you building full build to rent subdivisions? A combination of both. You know, so right now we have a mixture of about six thousand lots in our pipeline, and of that, uh, about three thousand of those are you know what you would consider traditional subdivisions, you know, where you, where you see, you know, 150 houses being built, uh, typically by the same builder or a couple builders, uh, track home sort of style. Uh, that's about half of our pipeline. And the other half is infill, uh, which is scattered lots in our various markets. So, you know, there might be a, uh, an existing community that there were a couple of lots left over that nobody ever built on, and, and we would buy those. There's some other areas like Palm Coast and Ocala uh, where there's quite a few more infill lots available due to the way that developers used to develop in those markets many years ago. Uh, and they would sell off lots to, uh, to individuals from up north that maybe thought they were going to retire down to Florida, but they never retired and then, or they never, you know, they never built their, their home. So all these individual people own these, these lots that never got built on. Um, so, you know, we have a, a, a pretty robust acquisition strategy to, you know, find these individual lot owners so that we're able to kind of make that nice product mix between 
um, you know, traditional subdivisions and, uh, and infill. And then in our traditional subdivision side of things, you know, that even segments out further, you know, where we have traditional single family home subdivisions, but we also uh, provide a product that's a quadruplex and duplex product that, you know, provides a, you know, more of an investment uh, vehicle as opposed to just single family homes, which are both, you know, investment and for sale to retail home buyers, not by us, but they might be at a later point in time. Uh, so the quadruplex product is also, uh, you know, about half and half between infill lots and uh, new construction communities. Yeah, you know, when built to rent came into play in a big way, what was that, four years ago, five years ago, would you say? Uh, yeah, that, I think that's when it really started to take hold. Yes. Yeah, and I, as you know, because we've had lots of conversations, I was always really concerned about a community of single-family homes that was all rentals. So just tell me a little bit about the risks to that model and what you've seen play out in reality. Sure. It really it depends on the, the buyer type. You know, so we see a lot of institutional investors that only want to own a whole community of rental properties. And, you know, in that case, you know, that's more of a management, uh, you know, a management style that they want to have. You know, they want to know that they own the whole community, that there's nobody else there and that they can treat it like a horizontal apartment complex. Whereas, you know, our model has primarily been uh, selling some lots to national home builders that sell to retail clients. And then we would build rental properties in and amongst those communities to sell to our clients because we don't sell to any retail home buyers. We only sell to investors looking for rental properties. You know, so what, you know, what that does when you, when you have that mix in, in, in particularly the single family properties, because it, it can be both a, a home buyer product and an investment product, you know, it really gives a, a lot of upward momentum to the sale price, uh, you know, for, for the investor that buys it, you know, so Typically, as builders build their way through a community, meaning retail home builders, the price goes up as they, you know, go through the phases. So, you know, we have a, a community in Panther Creek uh, here in Jacksonville, Florida, that's an 800 lot community. You know, we're building 50 or 60 lots for rental properties. The rest we've sold to national home builders and every phase that they go through, they raise the price. So, you know, it really helps boost up the values for the folks that are buying from us. Kathy and Chris, both of you, you said that build to rent sort of got popular around four or five years ago. Were there specific market conditions that made build to rent become more attractive around that time period? Absolutely. Right, Chris? <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, it was really hard to find existing homes. Um, and then, like Chris said, they were about the same price as a new home. So why would you buy an old one, an old cranky one, when you could get a new fresh one? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I'm curious because something I've always thought, I mean, it makes so much sense, Chris, you said earlier, right? It's your, if they're close in price, the maintenance is lower, you have a nice product that's really appealing to your, your prospective tenants. I probably falsely always assumed that build to rent only worked at subdivision scale, like what Kathy was asking about. But it seems that you've been able to achieve that on infills and individual one-off lots. Is that because you have the scale of a large building company, or is this something that small investors can also achieve financially, even if they're you know outsourcing their their building? Yeah, so I, I think yeah, I've got kind of two answers to that, and and one of it depends on where where that where that investor lives, you know, first of all. So, you know, and, and how they're going to manage those properties. So one of the things that, you know, we really see sets us apart and that, that our clients really like, and I think why we've seen so much success in the build to rent market with main street investors, you know, individual investors is because it's, it, it comes from a full service uh, standpoint, meaning we build the homes and then we immediately hand it over to our property management company that manages the homes. So we have, we have scale to that effect where, you know, we manage a couple thousand houses at this point in time. So the clients that are buying from us are able to really get that institutional style management on a one-off basis where they might not be able to get that if they bought two, three houses and they're trying to manage them themselves. You know, if you're trying to manage a property yourself, you know, you're, you're the, you know, the leasing agent, you're the you know, maintenance technician, you know, you are the property manager and the complaint department and everything wrapped into one, 
you know, whereas you know we have you know uh, 160 employees on uh, on our payroll right now. Each one of them has a specialty in one of those segments. So you know we're able to provide that institutional type management uh, to to folks that may only own one or two houses, but their houses get treated the exact same way as a large institutional buyers would, which is you know again that's really part of our goal and and our business model is to supply that type of product to Main Street investors versus all the institutional Wall Street guys being able to get all the product and, you know, make all the money. Yeah, I mean, again, Chris, you know, I've known you a long time and we talked about, uh, you know, taking on these subdivisions. And my fear was that if if you have so many different owners, uh, landlords in one subdivision, somebody might mess up. Like they might be in a situation where they need to rapid sell, you know, and they're going to lower rents, they're going to lower prices, and then that starts to spread throughout the community. Uh, back in 2009, when I was buying foreclosures too, I went to one of those communities, and that's where my fear stemmed from. I went to one where a group like mine, you know, like like Real Wealth, but a different one, not us, um, went in and, and sold out the entire community to individual investors. And then when the market tanked, then literally I'm walking through the subdivision and it was for sale signs like hundreds of them. It was awful. So suddenly this investor group, all these individuals are competing against each other, trying to rent, trying to sell, not getting anywhere on any of it. So maybe that particular area, and it was El Paso, Texas, so not a growth market like Florida for sure. So it could have just been market related, but that's always been my fear. You know, I get if a institutional companies coming in and they're buying the whole thing out and they're managing it like an apartment, but it just happens to be homes. That's controllable. But how do you control it when you have so many individuals that could potentially be in competition with each other when it comes to rent and to sell? Sure. So again, two things on that one. You know, one is just how we manage it internally and, and one is just kind of a general market condition. So how we manage internally is, you know, when we sell a property in a community, it comes with a two-year property management agreement. So at least for the first two years, our property management ag- company is stabilizing the community at, you know, at the rents that we anticipated that we've underwritten. You know, so there's not a competing nature because it's all one property management company leasing the properties. So, you know, everybody's on the same page. Incentives are 100% aligned. Um, now, I will tell you, even here in Jacksonville in Florida, you know, back in 2008, 2009, you know, the, the scenario that you mentioned very well could have happened here. You know, it, that's true. <laughs> I, I, I did not yeah. get in until 2009. So, you know, I, I'm not you got to pick up the pieces. Right. I'm not 100% <laughs> sure what happened. But what I'll tell you, and I've done a lot of research on this today, as you can imagine, with a you know with a very large lot pipeline, you know one of the things that's given me a lot of comfort to have that pipeline because as a developer, we need to be planning three, four years into the future with our our product lines because it just takes so long to get these entitled and developed. So you know when we're looking at it, we're really looking at you know from that time period in that 2008 2009 time period. What did the inventory look like? And inventory went up from 2009, 10, 11. 11 was about the peak of inventory. And so when we look at, at those numbers, I say, what does it look like today? Because what really caused that scenario was the, the fact that lenders were lending to anybody and everybody. So everybody wanted to become a landlord that A, shouldn't have been qualified to buy the house to begin with, but then B, uh, they, there was just so much overbuilding in the market that there were these properties that created all of these issues where people were competing with each other, which it's just a downward spiral where there's no stabilization. In today's market, we have such a shortage of housing. So we, we have about a third of the inventory on the market from a for sale standpoint today than we did in 2011. And when you look back at the numbers, like I'm very familiar with the Duval County numbers. It's our home office here is in Jacksonville. In this five-county area around Jacksonville, in, in 2005, so remember, the peak of inventory was you know 2011. So in 2005, there were 18,000 permits pulled in this, in this market. This year, we're only on track for 16,000 permits. So we're almost, you know, we're almost two decades later. So huge population growth. So probably over 20% population growth in that time period. And we're still pulling less permits today than we did at the peak uh, back in 2005. 
and and we we see further you know further inventory issues arising as we go along just due to the fact that development is uh, has become harder and harder to do and there's less and less lot inventory coming online so all that's to say not that there couldn't ever be one of those issues again uh, but right now we just don't see an overbuilding in the market uh, that we saw back in 2005 to 2008. And what's so cool is that you get a, a view of both sides most builders have no absolutely no clue about the rental side of things. Um, but you're able to kind of gauge that. So how has the rental demand been over the last few months when, or I would say just this year, but specifically the last few months when um, rents have gone up so high that it's becoming really challenging for people to pay? Absolutely. You know, the, the, it's, the, it's the good and the bad, right? You know, I mean, with, with inflation as a, as a landlord, as a property owner, you know, you've locked in your basis. So, you know, you you're, you're, you're now, you know, you're now a fan of inflation, uh, for your tenant, you know, not, not so much. So, you know, we, we've really seen, uh, we've seen, uh, some turnover in, in properties as, as rents have gone up and, uh, and we've seen new tenants coming in at much higher prices. So, you know, when we're speaking with our property owners, that's really a decision to make, you know, the, the rent could be two or $300 more on a unit in the market today than it was when the property was rented a year ago, year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, but, you know, you, you have a, a potential of a turnover cost and whatnot if the, if the tenant does not accept uh, that rental increase. So it's been a lot of conversation with our investors to say, you know, hey, you know, this is what we think we can get in the market. You know, would you like us to, to increase, uh, in, increase the property to that amount? Would you like to keep the existing tenant? And, uh, you know, in most cases, um, you know, people are, are looking to to increase those rents. You know, that's that's why that's why everybody's in real estate. You expect it to go up over time. You know, uh, real estate prices and and rents have you know, you look at a chart, they're always up and to the right. You know, they have been for as long as they've been they've been keeping uh, keeping score of those things. So, um, you know, but it but it, it has put a little bit of a strain on the leasing staff. You, know, you really have to make sure that you're vetting folks at these higher prices. You know, when you're giving an increase that's, you know, two, three hundred dollars, does that tenant still qualify for the new increase, even if it's an existing tenant? So it certainly uh, brings its own set of challenges um, as as we've seen rents escalate, you know, really more than they ever have in, in this given time period in history. Chris, you were talking about uh, all this data that you look at with inventory and population growth. Can you just tell our audience a little bit about what the key factors and variables that you look at when you're deciding which lots to pursue uh, and what types of developments you're pursuing strategically based on that data that you're looking at? Absolutely. So Kathy mentioned it earlier, but our, our, our number one key component is is there net in migration coming to the area that that we're that we're buying lots in? So if we're going to be putting new housing inventory on the grounds, we want to make sure that there's new people coming to that market to to fill that gap. Fortunately, we live in Florida, so there's it's it, you're hard pressed to find a uh, a town or city or, or county in Florida that is not growing. Uh, we've been the beneficiary of a lot of COVID related uh, relocation and. Uh, and, and, and we're thankful for all these folks coming to coming to town. Um, so that that's the number one key component. But then we're you know quickly there behind that we're looking at the median household income in the market. You know our goal has always been to provide housing that meets the widest range of tenants within a market. And so we look at you know can the average person in a market afford three times the monthly rent? So are they making you know, if you annualize the rent, multiply by three, you know, is the, is the normal household making, you know, at or around that median household income? Because then we're hitting the widest range of the market from a, from a tenant base. And so those are, those are really the two biggest factors that drive our decisions. You know, the others get, you know, dig a little bit deeper. You know, um, what are the jobs in the area? How many jobs are in an area? You know, we pull a lot of this data from ESRI. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the ESRI, but that's, uh, you know, it, it's really the driving data behind CoStar, LoopNet, you know, those sort of, you know, big data services. And, um, it, and it really has a lot of, uh, you know, kind of granular information, um, jobs and new, and new jobs in areas is a big one, um, you know, college degrees uh, versus not or technical degrees uh, within a, in a particular community or a couple other things that we look at. 
and and net worth. You know, what is the net worth in in uh, each of these um, you know each of these areas? And do you try and forecast out three or four years uh, just out of curiosity? Because you were saying that as a developer, you're planning several years out. Are you just looking at data now and presuming these trends are going to continue, or how do you think that far into the future? It is very, very tough. So, you know, <laughs> you know our, all right, I'm glad yeah. we're all on the same page about that. I, I, you know, we, we first, you know, we first try to make sure, does it make sense in today's world? And, you know, and then we look at what's happening, you know, so last year we saw rents go up, you know, over 20% on average, you know, certainly that is not sustainable. There's just no way that that can continue to happen. So, you know, we have, you know, much, much lower expectations of, of rental growth than what we've seen. You know, we still think that we're going to see, you know, plenty of rental growth this year. And, you know, we'll re reevaluate uh, at the end of this year and see where, you know, see where things are trending. Uh, but, you know, we're looking more at what are rents today when we're making these decisions, you know, on property purchases. And, you know, if rents are able to go up over time, then fantastic. You know, we've we've seen a lot of our, our clients, you know, go under contract and, you know, think the house is going to rent for $1,400 a month. And by the time they close on it, it's $1,550, $1,600 a month. Um, you know, so those are some those are some really big pickups. But they're not guaranteed. You know, there, there's no guarantees in real estate, that's for sure. Um, so we, uh, you know, we, we really try to stay on the conservative side of that, uh, that approach. So on the really challenging side of being a builder over the last two years is what you mentioned earlier. You know, you shut down the world, keep people in their houses, you don't have production. And then you turn the lights back on, everybody gets to go outside and do things. And the world isn't up, isn't ready for that. So obviously the builders felt, <laughs> felt the brunt of that um, and not being able to get the most basic of things, the things you wouldn't even thought would be an issue, starting of course with lumber. That's never, as far as I know, been an issue. Today is concrete. What, um, you know, what are some of the big surprises you've had to face over the couple of, that last couple of years? How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> It, this has been a rough a couple of years uh, from a building perspective. You know, it's, uh, man, it's been literally everything. You know, you, you mentioned that the, the biggest one right out of the gate was lumber. You know, lumber was just skyrocketed. And, you know, it, it went up, you know, it doubled. And we thought, well, I can't go up anymore. And then it tripled, you know, and it's just, please, <laughs> Louise, you know, it was impossible. I mean, we've seen such massive you know, 30, 40, 50% increases in build costs uh, in these markets, uh, you know, in the in these time periods. Um, it's been incredibly hard to budget and, uh, you know, to, you know, to try and produce a product and give a price, um, you know, with, with the way it's been. I, you know, if, if I was sharing my screen, I, I would share with you one of these reports that uh, you were asking about, Dave. It's the St. Louis Fed puts out a, you know, a producer pricing index for inputs to, to housing. And oh my gosh, I mean, it, you know, for 20 years, it was flat, 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 flat. And then all of a sudden it just went straight up. I mean, it's the last two years has been literally a straight up uh, turn in, in the cost of materials. So, um, you know, but lumber again, you know, to answer your question more specifically, lumber was the big one in the beginning and then everything else started to pile on. Um, you know, as things got to be in, in short supply, it, it became more of instead of vendors bidding for our business, you know, hey, you know, this is what we can do the work for and us negotiating a price down. It was really as a builder, we were bidding up prices to see if we could actually get them to show up at the job site because we, you know, there was there were way more people wanting to build homes than there were vendors to build the, you know, to, to do the various parts. So we've seen shortages from everything from AC duct to uh, to garage door springs to, you know, windows, doors, uh, appliances, you know, for a while were, you know, were a biggie. Um, you know, oh, geez, radiant ducts for uh, for fire rated systems in our quadruplexes. I mean, you know, we, we, we finally found some of those and we bought a semi full of them. So we bought a couple thousand of them at once because we didn't want to let them go. But that's just perpetuating the problem, right? You know, that's just, you know, making it worse because there's probably somebody else out there that needs them today and, and we have a truckload full of them. So, um, you know, it's it's really been, it's been tough, you know, and I will tell you here over the last couple of months, um, you know, we've started to see some leveling out, I would say, at least in, in pricing. 
um, in some of our markets. You know, some markets it's still incredibly difficult. Southwest Florida, you know, it's hard to even find truckloads of dirt to fill the lots down there, let alone find concrete and block uh, in those markets today. Um, but we've seen, you know, Palm Coast, Jacksonville, uh, Ocala, we're starting to see our, our build times come down, you know, which means that the materials are a little more readily available than they have been in the past. You know, block is still an issue right now. That's kind of our, our, our big, uh, you know, <laughs> no pun intended, that's our big stumbling block at the moment is, uh, is, is block and concrete. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, we start to see those coming around. And, you know, when I look at the, the averages of what we're paying to build a home uh, today, you know, it's still ticking up slightly, but not nearly as drastically uh, as it as it has been over the last two years. So, you know, we, we look at our eight eight week average, and in our eight week average right now is trending up about a thousand dollars. You know, the the average, you know, we're, we're, the total build cost is about a thousand dollars per unit more than the average of the last eight weeks. And I mean, you know. In, in any given month, uh, you know, during the last, you know, two years, that easily could have been five or $10,000 per unit. So, I mean, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're down a, a, you know, several multiples of, of what we've been experiencing. We still haven't seen any decreases in pricing, which um, is a little frustrating, honestly. Uh, you know, as a builder, we see the lumber prices coming down, but as lumber has come down, drywall's gone up, concrete's gone up paint's gone up, you know, you know, every other input has really, you know, kind of eroded any of the savings that we would have thought we would have seen from, from lumber. Uh, but to put a silver lining on it, it does seem to be flattening. So what have you had to change in your contracts, your contracts with subs, with sub, you know, with trades, with, with buyers, you know, because think, think of the builders who didn't write the right contracts in the beginning and they're stuck in these prices and can't raise the prices and they're just losing money. I mean, yeah. So how, how have you changed the wording? Yeah. In your contract? Well, and, and, and you've seen a lot of builders go out of business for that fact, you know, it, you know, everybody thinks that this is such a great environment and you know, it's, it's a lot of people have been buying houses, but a lot of people have been losing money on houses too. Uh, you know, from a builder perspective. Uh, so to answer, you know, your, your vendor question, you know, our vendor contracts have changed drastically because a lot of our vendors, we, we can't even get to sign contracts anymore. I, I think those tides might be turning or might be starting to turn. Uh, but, you know, for the past two years, nobody would commit to a price. You know, they'd say, hey, you know, um, you know, we, we think that we'll have the material for you and we'll let you know what it's going to cost when we get it. And so, you know, we're, we're really starting these houses without, you know, without great budgets. You know, we know what we think it should cost, but we're really at the mercy. You know, if, if AC units are in short supply and, you know, the vendor comes and says, hey, you know, I got 12 guys that want one AC unit, how much are you willing to pay for it? And, um, you know, those are some of the conversations that, you know, that we've been forced to have. Um, you know, and even, you know, right now, trusses, for instance, you know, they're still in short supply. So even though lumber's come down, truss prices haven't come down hardly at all because the truss manufacturers are going, well, hey, you still can't get them. So, you know, we're going to keep charging the price, not because it's what the material costs. It's, it's you know, because nobody else has them. So from a vendor perspective, you know, it's been difficult. We've, we've really, you know, gone away from a lot of contracts because they don't, you know, they're not honoring them and, and or they won't sign them. Um, so from, from our perspective on the, you know, when we're selling home side, you know, we've had to institute clauses into our agreements that, uh, that say, you know, hey, this is the price right now. But when we go to build your home, if the price has increased, we'll tell you what the increase is. And then you have the option to terminate the contract uh, or, or move forward at the increased price. You know, when, when we were when we were seeing such uh, such delays to, to, to materials coming in, you know, we, we really had to institute the, those sort of measures because we didn't know when we were going to be able to start a house. Um, and that was, you know, 2020, 2021 and, and early part of 2022. Um, I am happy to announce, though, as of June, um, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, we were able to get caught up enough on production uh, to uh, eliminate the need for that, uh, that those clauses are still in our contracts, but the clause states that you know we'll give you a price increase when the slab is poured. Um, so in uh, you know since June, we've been able to wait until the slab is poured, so we have a much better visibility in pricing before we sell a home. Um, so you know we are 
knock on wood, uh, hopefully out of the woods uh, on uh, at least new contracts on those. We've still got a, we've still got a few, you know, working their way through the pipeline that are that are going to need some price increases. Uh, but the the there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Does it does it still make sense for those investors? I, I, you know, again, most of your buyers are investors, whether they're institutional or individual, and they're they knew they were going into this with the you know the idea that prices could go up. Um, but have rents gone up uh, equivalently, and does it still make sense, or have, have cash flows reduced dramatically? Well, we've seen you know two two different things on that as well. We you know we've seen uh, you know for for new for new product that we're selling as lot prices have gone up over time, we're definitely seeing a compression in cash flow, um, just simply because the interest rates have gone up so much. You know here recently. Uh, still positive cash flow on you know the vast majority of the product that we build uh, has positive cash flow, um, but I, when to answer your question related to the the people who have had price increases, the good news for those folks is we typically bought those lots at a lower basis, so even though there there's a price increase due to material increases, um, there's not a full price increase to current market rates. So, you know, they're still walking into a fair amount of equity in those properties, uh, which is a great thing. But to your point, the rents have also gone up significantly over that time period as well. So, you know, really, in a lot of cases, they're, you know, the same or maybe slightly better in some cases or maybe slightly worse in some cases, but very similar because we've seen such rent growth. You know, the real, you know, the, the, the real wild card is, you know, interest rates. You know, what are interest rates compared to what they were when they contracted you know, what are interest rates today and what are they going to be in six months from now? You know, I think, uh, you know, as we sit here today, we're probably going to be seeing uh, another uh, another another Fed rate hike. Um, you know, from from my perspective, you know what I see in the world. I think we've already overcorrected, um, you know, which tells me at some point in the future here, probably sometime next year, you know, we're going to start to see, uh, you know, either leveling or, or maybe even backing off of some of those rates. So, um, you know, for for me, you know, in my portfolio, I'm looking at it from a perspective of locking in my basis now. As I mentioned, the, the build cost has not, uh, you know, isn't going down. So, you know, locking in that basis and, and hoping, for, uh, hoping for better interest rates in years to come. <laughs> Chris, I'm sure you have a lot of friends and colleagues who are building around the country. And I'm just curious what you're hearing from them as well, because at least what I see at the data is that, uh, you know, construction starts and permits are trending down and people are not building as much. Is that what you're hearing as well? We've seen that we've seen the same data, you know, Duval County, you know, permits are significantly lower in, in all markets. Uh, we've seen significantly lower uh, permit levels. Um, but what we haven't seen, because I think there's, you know, a lot of properties still under construction, and that's why we have not seen the, um, you know, any, any real decreases in, in that pricing. So, you know, we're, we're hopeful that it's to come. And, you know, I talked to a lot of other builders throughout the country and, uh, you know, we, we all keep thinking that we're going to see some decrease, but it keeps not happening. So I, I don't know if we're just wishful thinking because uh, some of this some of this pricing gets very sticky. You know, I mean, the the material suppliers, you know, have now you know, had made, you know, made commitments based on, uh, based on, you know, margins at, you know, higher price of goods. They're paying their staff a lot more. Um, so, you know, in, in, in some ways, you know, it's hard for the, it's hard for the pricing to come back uh, because we've all seen so much inflation uh, over the, over the last, uh, you know, over the last two years that, you know, we know we're not going to get it all back. We're never, never, ever, ever going to go back to pricing that we had pre-COVID. That, that's, not, that's not ever going to happen. Um, you know, we're hoping for some sort of reprieve just as, you know, things stabilize uh, and, and the supply chain straighten themselves out. Uh, but, you know, it always, you know, like I said earlier with the lumber, you know, the lumber's gone down, but everything, you know, we've had two or three other big things go up. So, you know, I, I'm reluctant to say that we're going to see any sort of price decreases. And I think, you know, from an inventory standpoint, I think we're going to see a peak of inventory in, in Q4, maybe Q1 of, of 2023. So, you know, you know, end of 2022, beginning of 2023. But, you know, being a, a lot developer that sells homes to, to retail homes, you know, home builders. So, you know, all the national home builders, those guys are pulling way back on their starts, you know. 
they, they all got burned in, in 2008, uh, seven and eight badly. So they, they have a, a big knee jerk reaction to, you know, what we're seeing in the, in the world. Um, you know, so they're saying, Hey, slow, you know, stop starts, you know, you know, mothball development projects, you know, which is, you know, going to in turn mean that, you know, we might have some increased inventory for a few months, but as that gets gobbled up, uh, you know, we're going to be back to, you know, maybe even more of a severe shortage than than we are today, because really the building and development world, you know, sector had really just started to catch its stride and being able to produce enough lots and homes uh, to support the demand. And we were kind of, uh, we were still at a major shortage, but we, we were starting to see that that momentum to where we would have an equilibrium. And this, you know, everybody putting the brakes on is is really um, you know, is, is, is really put a, a big damper in that. So, uh, you know, you know, we'll see what, what happens, but, but right now I see, I see a lot of people mothballing projects. Even the build to rent institutional purchasers, are they slowing down? So the build to rent folks are, are not slowing down nearly as much, you know, because uh, as you can see with the, the retail home builders, you know, not only are they pulling back on what they're, what they're building, so they're going to have less supply, Ultimately, um, you know, you have a lot less people that'll qualify. So, you know, if you had somebody that was going to qualify at three percent for a retail home, they may not qualify at six percent, and probably don't. Not certainly not for the same home. So, unless they're going to move down, you know, down in, uh, you know, in housing type, um, they're probably not buying a home. So, you know, we have a lot more folks that are, you know, trending back towards rentals uh, than, you know, than than really we had even anticipated previously. So. Uh, so the institutionals, you know, again, you know, some of the folks that we do work with, um, they're they're still buying development projects. You know, we're just about to sign a a, a contract with an institutional to uh, to sell them a, another hundred lots in in one of our communities. Um, so you know, we see those guys still plowing ahead, uh, but they feel they feel the wind is at their back from a from a rental perspective. You know, they've they've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> Well, Chris, this has been super helpful. You are uh, obviously a wealth of knowledge, and I'm just fascinated uh, about this build for rent and uh, think that it's a really helpful lesson for everyone who's listening to this, just just learning from your uh, experience here. But is there anything else that you think our audience of aspiring and active real estate investors should be considering about today's current market conditions uh, as they go and build their portfolios? Well, I'll jump in with a couple of mine, and I'm sure Kathy has some. You know, one, one of the biggest things that we've seen change for our for our clients, our, our Main Street clients today, is, you know, they don't have access to the institutional capital that these, that these institutional buyers do. And, um, and so, you know, we've had to get creative with financing um, to, you know, to help folks and, and figure out, how to you know offset some of these higher interest rates? You know everybody looks at you know that that six percent rate that they hear on the news, and you know and that's that's only you know one component. So you know we've seen a lot of lenders out there and, and get very competitive. You know the lending market is uh, is rather disjointed at the moment. You know you you see some lenders you know really hedging and putting big margins on on their loans, and then others you know are getting very aggressive. And even offering rate buy-down uh, solutions to clients to really bring that that payment down. So we still see a lot of our clients doing uh, Fannie and Freddie loans and buying the rate down, you know, to create that cash flow for uh, you know for the for the for the hold, you know, for the investment that they're buying. And we've also seen a lot of our clients move to some of these interest-only loans. So you know, we've seen some very interesting product you know, five, one arms, you know, everybody has a you know, bit of a stigma of arms because that was one of the things that caused the problems, you know, back in 2005 and six, you know, but arms done the right way for investor clients are great. You know, that's, that's what these institutional guys are doing. You know, they're not getting 30 year fixed loans. You know, they're doing, you know, these adjustable mortgages that, that have some period of fixed rate. So, you know, I personally have been doing a lot of five year fixed rates, and I found a product that's non-recourse. It's five-year fixed rate. Uh, at the end of five years, it can adjust, but there's caps on how much it can adjust. And at the end of the five years, it doesn't balloon. It fully amortizes. So it's still a 30-year loan. Um, so you're never stuck with that big balloon payment. You, you may get stuck with a, a higher interest rate. Uh, you know, but my thought is, 
you know, for my personal portfolio, I believe rates are going to go down in the next five years. I, I think they're going to go down in the next 12 months. Uh, but I certainly believe they're going to be lower in the next five years. You know, so I anticipate that I'll refinance out of those and and into uh, you know into longer longer term uh, longer term debt. So I, I think for for investors out there, particularly Main Street investors, you know don't don't get stuck on the rate today. The beauty of real estate is you know you can refinance that property as often as you uh, want to or need to you know to maximize the the return and, and the investment uh, in in that project. Yeah, another loan that uh, at least in our developments people are are choosing is the uh, construction to perm loan. Because it is scary to go into a contract and have no idea what rates are going to be like when the project's finished and you got to get out, you, you got to close, you know, or else you lose your deposit. Uh, so I really like the, you know, just get one loan, it covers construction, it converts to, you know, lo- whatever your terms are, five, seven, 10, or 30 year, um, once the project, once the, the building is finished. So, you know, I, I'm taking those as well. I think it uh, offers a lot of security. A hundred percent agree. And, you know, sometimes, Chris, I don't know if you do this, but if the, if the buyer is then buying the lot and getting their own construction loan, uh, oftentimes that means you can get the, the price a little lower because the builder's not taking on that cost of debt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, debt is a, you know, that's a big number in the, in, in the home building game. You know, that's one of our biggest line items, uh, you know, is the finance cost, individual line items anyway. So, yeah, I, I think that's a great way to go about it. We've done that, you know, some on our, some of our personal uh, building holds as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, all of these are things that we, we didn't talk about a year ago. You know, I mean, and Kathy and I talk a lot and, you know, but there was no need to talk about it then, you know, as the markets changed, you know, now, you, you know, you need to think of these creative solutions, you know, the option is think of a creative solution to, you know, to do business or just sit on the sidelines and do nothing and see what happens. And either one's scary. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't really hard when there was like 3% 30 year fixed rate mortgages to decide what loan product to go after as an investor. But as they say, you know, like the people who are going to get creative and find these solutions, like the ones you guys are, are pointing out here, are the ones who are going to get the best opportunities in this market. And from all the people we talk to on the show, it does seem like there are opportunities if you are willing to do that extra legwork and think through some uh, some solutions that you weren't thinking through a year ago, just like the two of you. A hundred percent. You know, one thing about real estate, having been in it for so long, is it's always changing. It's when I first when I first started, it new homes were the thing, you know. And in, in the, it was the same kind of thing. I could get amazing cash flow on a new home, so why would I buy an old one? And then all of a sudden, you know, the, everything fell apart, and it was you could get existing homes for almost nothing. So of course we pivoted and did that, and we're buying uh, you know foreclosures from banks and, and and REOs, and and then those all got bought out. It's like what do we do now? There's no inventory. I guess we got to build again. So you know it's it's always changing, and if you've been in the game long enough, you'll be changing too, or else you won't be playing the game. True, so true. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. If anyone who's listening wants to connect with you, what's the best place they can do that? Oh, we. We'd love them to come check us out at southernimpressionhomes.com. Uh, there's a lot about our product and, and inventory on uh, on the website. And, you know, there's uh, ways to interact uh, with uh, with our team right there. And um, happy to happy to uh, to connect that way. So just fill out uh, fill out one of the forms and somebody will be in contact almost immediately. All right. Chris Funk, thank you so much for joining us here on The Market. Appreciate you having me. That was awesome, Kathy. You have uh, the coolest friends. Thank you for bringing Chris. How do you? How do I get cool friends like you? <laughs> oh well, we search the country for them, I guess. <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm actually curious. How do you meet so many people? Is it just networking, going to conferences? Where do you? How do you develop such a great network of other real estate investors and people who have helped you in your journey? I do speak at a lot of conferences. I have had a real well show for. Oh my gosh, 20 years. <laughs> so I've interviewed a lot of people, but our company is also based on finding really good builders and and property managers and teams nationwide to help help our members at Real Wealth buy stuff. So that's my job. I got to find cool people. 
<laughs> well, you're good at it. <laughs> Thank what you. Did, uh, what did you uh, learn from Chris today? I know you talked to him all the time, but was there anything in particular you got out of this conversation? Just a reminder of how difficult it's been. You know, I'm I'm obviously we have three or four four subdivisions. We finally sold off a couple of them, so that's good. Nice. Uh, but you know, I'm not hands on, obviously, the way he is, and to hear all the challenges and and on my side, I hear the investor complaints. And I, so my job is to get everyone communicating. And so I figured there were some bigger pockets people who also are frustrated, you know, with their builder. A lot of the comments we get from our buyers is, oh, they're just trying to rip us off. They're just trying to raise the prices because they can, and they're keeping all these profits. And so I'll put together the webinars and say, let, you know, open your books. What's going on? What are you paying for things? What's your profit? And generally, profit margins on new homes are really small anyway. They're they're five to ten percent. And generally, you make all your profit at the very, very, very end. And in our subdivisions, we still have to create thirty uh, percent of our subdivisions need to be affordable for the you know the teachers and the firefighters and the police. Um, and and there's no negotiating on those. Like we're locked in in Park City. We're locked in on, you know, $400,000 properties that cost us $800,000 to build. But, you know, we, we it's an agreement. We have to do it. So anyway, bottom line is I want investors to really understand that it's not always the greedy builder that's trying to rip you off. It's just the way things are. It's just inflation, not just inflation, but <laughs> it's a severe, severely unhealthy version of inflation that it also includes complete lack of supplies. It's one thing to have things be expensive. It's another thing to not be able to find what you need at all. Yeah, it's it's crazy. That chart he was talking about, the, the producer price index uh, for home building is a crazy thing to look at if you're at home and you just want to understand what Kathy yeah. and Chris are talking about. They're, they're, the, the new home industry actually has really good data, generally speaking, that just like an average person can look up if you just want to understand broad macroeconomic trends. So if you want to understand what Kathy's talking about, Go check that out for yourself. I, I think it's that this whole industry is just really fascinating. Uh, the whole build to rent um, model just makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know that there's a lot of uh, cries out there or headlines in the media that make it say like, oh, this is the beginning of a, of a renter nation. Um, and the data honestly doesn't really bear that out uh, yeah, at all. I know. Yeah, I've, yeah, been home, I've been on CNBC. It's the same. It's the same. <laughs> They've been saying that for 10 years and I would go on these yeah. big, you know, stations on again, CNBC and Fox and ABC and say, no, 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 it's not that different. It's always in the 60%, like 62% homeownership. The highest was, I think we got to 69. There are uh, still a lot of homeowners out there. Totally. Um, right. And to me, that's like, that just should like, if I were a renter, I actually am a renter. I, I rent in Amsterdam, but if I were a renter in the United States, um, a build to rent like subdivision and getting single family home sounds like a good option, you know? So like, I, mm -hmm. to me, it sounds like if this is a, if it, this is a profitable endeavor for builders and investors, and it's allowing people to live in a product that they really like, it just seems like a really interesting, uh, trend that is likely going to continue for the next couple of years and something that investors should be considering because, you know, I always assumed it was just at the subdivision level, not that you were people were doing build for rent in terms of infill. But uh, I guess to Chris's point, you have to have the systems to manage those efficiently to, to actually oh, generate yeah. the cash flow. Yeah, ours has always been infill or we would negotiate with um, builders for for our clients that uh, will take 10% of your inventory. But the you know uh, most subdivisions don't want more than 10% of the homes to be more you know to be rentals because it can change the vibe. But if they're individuals cuz some people might self-manage, some might hire a horrible property manager and it can bring down the value of the other homes around it if it's not well cared for. So I would say that the number one thing that investors should keep in mind because there's going to be a lot of builders licking their wounds right now. It is a good time to be able to um you know to probably get a good deal on new homes. But do keep in mind ask, you know, how many other renters do we have? I mean, who are you selling to? And most importantly, I've met a lot of people who have come to me and they want us to promote them and sell their stuff to investors. And 
Uh, and they're like, I, I won't say any names, but there's one guy who's got 800 homes in a subdivision uh, that he's selling one off to investors who are not like Chris. Now, Chris is going to manage uh, those subdivisions. But this other guy, he's just building them, doesn't have property management, and he's selling 800 rentals to different buyers. That is not going to end well. So always ask, in my opinion, you know, think about it. One person faces a hardship. They need to fire, sell their property, or they need to just get anyone in there. They bring in the local drug dealer, you know, and it just brings, it just can really spread like wildfire very quickly. So, oh, yeah. 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 I, sorry. I was glad you asked that question because I've always stayed away from investing in subdivisions because it just seems like there could just be a quick race to the bottom. If there's an increase yeah. in vacancy in the market and all of a sudden your neighbor needs cash more than you do and they drop their rents 200 and then the neighbor next door, drop, there's no way to differentiate your product. Yeah is exactly the same. And so the only way you compete is on price. And if someone else is willing to go lower than you, you just get screwed. Like, you you know, so yeah. uh, I, I was really glad you asked that question. Um, and and that honestly just sounds like a nightmare, just selling those those individual units one at a time to individual landlords. That That is not a situation I would want to get myself into. Be very careful out there. Yeah, because there's always going to be greed and there's going to be desperate sellers, def desperate builders that will just sell to anyone. So that would be my first question. How many, you know, investors do you have in here? And then you might have trouble getting financing if it's, if it's all investor. I mean, how, that was my other question to this guy, how on earth are, are these people going to get loans when the lender finds out it's a hundred, that's a basically an apartment. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a condo basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It, that's, that's a good thing to look out for, but I do agree with you that right now is probably a good opportunity, a better opportunity than most times to look at new construction. I've never bought it, but I've been looking at it because the premium now is about 8% nationwide. And in some markets, it's lower. Like it is, it is extremely close in terms of the price of existing homes and new homes. Um, and, you know, depending on where you are, that could be, that could allow you to get a brand new product at a similar price uh to to what uh to what you would pay for um an existing home so like chris said that the 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 prices just aren't that different and you get a better product so i i would i would recommend people look at it it's it's traditionally not the the best way for investors to make money but right now it could be Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned we are launching another single family rental fund in the Texas area. And uh we're we're really focused on buying new homes that, you know, builders like like Chris said, they they are going out of business and we can we can help them, save them, but also buy these either half finished homes or lots that they couldn't complete. And uh, you know, that'll be part of our rental fund. Great. And I just watched your uh YouTube video about it. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was very good. So if anyone else wants to check that out, Kathy's Real Wealth Network. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining as always. And thank you for bringing Chris. He was an awesome guest. I appreciate you uh, recommending him. Thank you. I learned a lot too. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time for On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media copywriting by Nate Weintraub, and a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. 
And all this, what I'm describing here is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.